Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. Thank you all so much for tuning in today to episode 16 of the podcast. My guest a little later on is the amazing Sarah Watkins. You may know her from Nickel Creek or from all the great music she's put out under her own name, perhaps from her work with I'm With Her. She's got a great new record out called Under the Pepper Tree, so we're going to get into that and lots of fun stuff from her past, so stick around for that. I'm also going to be talking a little bit about music genres with the Grammys just passing by, and this, of course, is always sort of an omnipresent discussion in bluegrass, but today I'm looking at it from more of a zoomed-out view. Why does it matter what name we give to different musical styles and how is the concept and utility of music genres evolving? So we'll look at that here in just a sec. Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris is behind all kinds of great podcasts. Make sure to check them out. And we are also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the infamous String Dusters new record label. And we just put out the Sweet Lilies record, and we've got all kinds of cool stuff on the way. So stay tuned to Americana Vibes. We've got some great sponsors this season on the podcast. Big shout out to EMG Pickups. EMG is primarily known for their electric pickups, but they've got some great options for the acoustic instruments as well, including the ACB barrel, which I've had in my banjo for years now. Sounds great, really easy to install and really reliable, which is huge if you're out there on the road playing gigs. EMG has been family owned and operated since the 70s and all made in the USA, which I really love. And the gear is top notch. So check out EMG for all your pickup needs. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by Icelandic Skis, another company that's all made in the USA, 
Based right here in Colorado, makers of really, really excellent skis. The Nomad 105 is my ski of choice, and we've been working with Icy for years now. It was probably about 10 years ago. We were on ski tour, and we were in Grand Targhee, demoed a pair of their skis, fell in love, wrote an email to the company, heard back from the one and only Ashley Hart, and developed a great friendship. They have a really cool community, and there's a lot of crossover between skiing and music these days. So we've co-branded tours and done a lot of really cool stuff together, but mostly these guys just make great boards. So check out Icelandic Skis. All right, let's talk about music genres for a minute. Always a juicy topic, always something the artists are wondering about. What are they going to categorize my music as? What this new song that I just came up with, what are they going to call this one? And for fans too, you know, what genres am I into? And that oftentimes will be the gateway to discovering new music that you love. But the lines are getting pretty blurry these days. And this has always been a topic of conversation in the bluegrass world. You know, is it bluegrass? Is it traditional progressive? But today, sort of looking at it from more of a zoomed out view. And of course, with the recent installment of the Grammy Awards, which just went down recently, that, of course, is something where genre and the categorization of music is on full display. Like, there's no Grammys without music categories. And so it kind of gets you thinking. And there's this great article that just came out in The New Yorker, one of my favorite publications, called Merging Lanes, The Notion of Genre is Disappearing, What Comes Next by Amanda Petrusich. And a few people sent me this article, and it was really interesting, just got me thinking about how musical styles are blending together like never before, how the different genres, the lines between those genres are getting really blurry. And that has some huge implications for artists who are trying to figure out, what do I call this new track that I just came up with, these weird new sounds, or fans who are trying to discover new music. And of course, for the industry, that's always trying to categorize and subsequently use those categories to market and sell music to people who they think will dig it. And the point of all this is not that genres are like inherently bad. It's just that things are changing at light speed right now. And here's a quick little look at why that's happening and, and what it means. So genres, of course, came about from the industry side of the music. The industry is trying to sell music. They, they need to categorize it. They need to be able to take this song and lump it together with other songs or artists that have a similar sound so it can make its way to people who dig that sound. And there are sort of training audiences in the process and solidifying the meaning and the use of these different terms, pop, jazz, rock, or country, these big catch-all terms. And like so many things in the music industry or just business in general, life in general, these terms were controlled by the gatekeepers. And in the music world, that would have been like radio DJs, record labels. And it was easier to lump different styles into these these cleaner sort of categories, the music was simpler to categorize. But now that is not the case anymore. And we're seeing evolution of the concept of genre from the artistic side, from the fan side, and from the industry side. And from the artistic side, in terms of art, music is just this huge melting pot right now. And since the advent of the internet, it seems like the disintegration of these 
different genres has just sped up. The influence of music travels at light speed across the globe. Someone makes a song halfway across the world. You hear it that day, and it influences what you do. And in turn, we just see this breakdown of kind of the regional nature of music. You know, certain styles were associated with certain places or certain cultures. And now that's all going away. And we see it in a lot of modern hip hop and rap. You know, if you've ever seen the artist Diplo, they call him the culture vulture because he's grabbing sounds from Brazilian music and incorporating it into his electronic music borders, the barriers are just going away. Of course, country music has become something I don't I don't even know what it is. It's got all these elements of pop and rock and electronic as well. And the borders are just breaking down at light speed. And of course, got to give a shout out to Run DMC and Aerosmith. Their Walk This Way collaboration was definitely an early uh, big sort of signal of this trend, but now it's happening at light speed. And that's sort of from the artistic side. That's what's going on with the music. Now, from the consumer side, and this was a really interesting part of this, this New Yorker article that I mentioned, there's a quote in there that says, genre is a mix of formal structure and cultural context. So the formal structure part, that's going to be like the instrumentation, what instruments they use, or the musical forms, how many bars, what chords. But the cultural context, that's this whole other animal. And that ties into the lyrical content and also, you know, what an artist looks like and who they might appeal to, who their tribe is. So this cultural context piece has become really important. And it's not just about the sound of the music or the influences that have pushed an artist in a certain direction. It's about what the audience expects of that artist. And that's driving trends around categorizing and selling music. And again, we see this in the crazy world of commercial country, which is hugely profitable, but has strayed so far from what I think of country music. And of course, in the modern country world, there is this renaissance of cool sort of throwback country, you know, with that Cash, Waylon Jennings sound, artists like Sturgill Simpson, Tyler Childers, Margot Price, really cool quality country. But there is this other side of commercial country, and I don't know, I don't know what that music is. But the reason that it's moving in that direction is because that's what the consumers expect and dig. And so that part of the industry has been flooded with people who recognize that, recognize the potential to make a lot of money. And I would argue that that is what's going down in that weird world of commercial country. You know, suits have flooded into the studios with dollar signs in their eyes and artists that are a lot more malleable. You know, this music is not coming from artists who have some deep, grand vision. It's really about making money and, again, catering to what the consumers want. So that's sort of the consumer side. And then there's the industry side, the side of the vendors, and these days, of course, the streaming services. And how are they using genre now? Because, of course, that's why genres came around in the first place as a tool designed to help sell music. And, of course, Spotify is ahead of the game. Surprise, surprise. If you compare them with... The Grammys has 84 categories, I think. And they break the music into roughly 20 genres. How can we fit all the music that's out there 
into 20 different genres. That's crazy. Spotify using over 5,000 genres, and they're classifying and categorizing music based on all these different characteristics to find the overlap between different songs, different sounds. They're looking at the tempo, the vibe, you know, the sonic characteristics, the colors, and associating them with different activities, different times of day. If you want to check out something cool, check out everynoise.com, which is a site curated by Spotify's data alchemist, Glenn McDonald. And you see all the genres that they use, and you can get a sample of every one, and you can see how bubblegum dance compares to deep tropical house, or I don't know, maybe you're into post-punk Mexicano. You can see all of that stuff at everynoise.com. So from the vendor side, we see certain people like the streaming services really adapting and taking advantage of the fact that these borders are breaking down and there is a lot more crossover between songs and artists that would end up in really different categories or genres potentially if we only had a small handful to choose from. But we don't. Things are changing. And interestingly, this definitely mirrors a bigger cultural trend As the world becomes more of a melting pot, as the world becomes a much smaller place, we just don't understand things in such simple binary terms anymore. Things like race and gender and, of course, music. You just can't put these things into a simple box anymore. We need a more nuanced, more subtle way of categorizing them. And why does any of this matter? Well, of course, like always, I'm looking at it from the artist's perspective, and there is a value to getting it right in terms of categorizing things, because it will help me find my tribe, help me have success, and help propel everything forward and encourage the the creation of more great art. And that's that's always, like I say, that's always how I'm looking at it. And right now, I've got some some new tracks that I'm trying to decide. Are they technical, brutal death metal? Or are they Australian post-hardcore? I'm not sure. Check out that Every Noise site. Really interesting. Also interesting, I definitely encountered this when I put out my recent record, Transbanjo, because it's kind of its its own thing. But, you know, I wanted to find the right home, and bluegrass people might like it, and electronic music people might like it. And as genre evolves, it's becoming easier to reach both or reach anyone with your music, reach whoever is buying what you're selling. All right, on to my interview with Sarah Watkins. I sat down with Sarah via Zoom, of course, a few weeks ago to talk about her really cool new record and all the cool stuff that she's done. Here we go. Lonely but free, I'll be found Drifting along with the tumble and tumbleweeds Cares of the past are behind All right, we are here on Inside the Musician's Brain, really excited about our guest today, whose career is very prolific with all kinds of influential and successful projects that include Nickel Creek, I'm With Her, Watkins Family Hour, and a bunch of amazing solo releases. Sarah Watkins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here, Chris. So how's it going? 
How are you? How are you doing with this crazy, crazy last year that we just had? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, you know, it gets old, but there I've been, uh, you know, safe in a house. I've been able to uh, see my folks a little bit here and there, um, which has been huge, I think, in terms of my sanity. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm doing okay. That's great. Well, you've you've got some cool new stuff going on. You've obviously taken advantage of the time and you have a new album on the way. Tell us about it. Yes, I'm really excited. I've never done a concept record before and I never have really understood them and they always felt like something I didn't relate to. And then I found myself doing one, like in the process of, of the making of it, I realized that it was a concept record because it's basically a, a record for kids. It's a, it's a children's record. And um, it's, I've always been interested in, uh, you know, when the holidays come, finding Christmas songs that aren't necessarily Christmas songs. And um, in the course of being a, becoming a parent, I have a three-year-old now, um, we're, you know, trying to find playlists that, that are toler tolerable, as every parent does. And um, so a lot of those songs are Roger Miller or Harry Nilsson or, um, you know, some beautiful other actual children's records made by, by musicians. Um, and... It's been, uh, I've been falling in love again with a lot of old Disney songs and okay. a lot of American classics that were fundamental in my childhood. And so um, I made this record that pays tribute to a lot of those songs. And it Lo was, Love the Willy Wonka theme. Thank you. So great. That that's a, was that's a film a I was not able to watch until I was like a junior high because I was so scared of it. That's a great, yeah, it's trippy. And, and the original is, is that's, a, that's a really sort of fundamental movie that I remember from my youth that has all kinds of great concept vibes, music, acting. It's just very visionary and cool, but I love that song. It's incredible. I, yeah, I, I, the first song on the record is Pure Imagination. And... It was a real trip to try and record it uh, because there is so much movement in the original track. If you listen back to Gene Wilder's vocal on that, it's in the tempo, the way the orchestra, the orchestration, mm -hmm. uh, the way the orchestra moves with the vocal. I've had a, I've gone back and forth in terms of how I imagine that they recorded it because it feels like two different settings sonically hmm. and. Um, so anyway, we, we, we recorded that by, um, Tyler Chester would produce the record for me. Yeah. Uh, and under the pepper tree is under the pepper tree is what the name of the record yeah, is. Yeah. Right, right. It's so fun to talk about. I haven't talked about it that much yet, so I'm not in very good practice. My, my spiel is not refined yet. <laughs> Let's get know. it. Let's get it dialed in here. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, under the pepper tree, the record was, was recorded, uh, this summer uh, in a studio that we were able to just um, just be in for about a, a week and a half, uh, a friend's studio. And, um, and, and um, 
we recorded a, a pure imagination by by just kind of layering onto the original track and and then we took uh that original audio file away and tried to replace it so we we, we tried we just drew our map oh, on cool. top of the the original recording to try and and maintain the the shape and motion um which was really really fun to do it's solving a completely different puzzle than i am usually solving and um and a lot of this record was like that for me because it wasn't sourced from original material or covers that i've followed that i've been playing on tour for so long all these songs um have lived with me a lot longer than that and um and I was able to also bring in some friends to to sing on it too, which was really uh, full circle. For yeah, me. the Nickel Creek crew, right, is on on one track. Yep we uh, we did uh, what's it called? Um, <laughs> uh, Blue Shadows on the Trail, which is a song from the Three Amigos soundtrack. Amazing! And love um, it. <laughs> do you love that movie? Oh yeah! Oh, it's so great! <laughs> it's so great. And Randy got Newman a, wrote all those songs. Yeah, and you've got a mix of there's some originals, and then there are these cool covers on this record. And I read that it sort of started the seed of the idea grew out of an ask someone was asking you to be a part of like yeah. a COVID stream and to create totally. something kind of mellow, and yeah. and this kind of grew out of that. One hundred percent. Yeah, because I, I thought I, I'd been thinking. Um, I, I, yeah, it was it was like a Spin magazine live stream, and my friend uh, recommended me for it. And um, in fact, I still have their just like login info on my Instagram because I can't. I don't know how to delete an account. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that problem. Anyway, um, I uh, I just was thinking like, oh, what what I do? They wanted um, bedtime music to help people transition into sleeping time. And honestly, that is what this record is for me. It's reflects a transitional time because, um, you know, in this whole, in my life living at home this year, which is new for me, my rhythm, the, the place that I have rhythm is on the road. That's the only time that I have a cycle, a sure. daily cycle that, that my life follows. When I'm at home, it's like vacation or now that I have a child, um, it's a different rhythm, but it's, um, uh, so being at home and finding a rhythm without going to, to work and everything that everyone else has been doing as well, I have found that it's nice to have these little moments that signify something, uh, and, and signify a time of day and, and to, um, really celebrate a natural need that we all have, which is transition from thing to thing. I feel like the on and offness of everything that is digital is really uh, can be can be jarring, um, certainly to to kids and also I think to grownups and and um, and so this record is I imagine it being used in transitioning into you know the mellow dreaminess that of, of nighttime. And, um, that's, that's what it was written for and, or uh, arranged for. Um, I don't know if you've, have you ever 
sequenced a record before recording it? We have. We did that with our record Laws of Gravity that we won the Grammy for. And it was right. really cool because and I remember, <laughs> well, I mean, who knows what part that played in it. But I, I felt like when we were doing the sessions, it was awesome in a few capacities to know what was coming up and sort of not have to make that decision. Okay, what's next? And, mm -hmm. you know, you have this sort of flow to it. But even bigger than that, I think from a creation standpoint, the sessions, it was like being in, it was like living the album yeah. as it came to life and the arc of the songs. Did you record it in order? Yeah. Awesome. We recorded. And, and what about you? You said you sequenced this one ahead of time and mm -hmm. also recorded it in order. We did not record it in order. Okay. But we, uh, we sequenced it ahead of time and we did a little practice swing of pre-production just to make sure that that was the best sequence. We made a couple tweaks and then, and then we did a final version, but, um, I wanted, you know, I, it came, it became clear that I was, I was recording a bunch, some songs that, that a series of kind of mellow songs. And I imagined people listening to it and getting to the third slowish track and being like, all right, I'm done with this. And so I wanted the songs to, to blend together and to be um, more of a, of a piece. And that began the strategy of finding which songs went into the, the next best um, how to arrange the songs in a way that had that had that overlap, and that and was there's a, a lot of transitional elements too. Yeah, 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 I love that a lot, and and um, that was because I wanted I wanted each side to just flow flow by. I didn't want people to think, oh, now we're listening to Beautiful Dreamer, now we're listening to Tumbling Tumbleweeds, and there's a no, new song. I wanted it to just go by like a like a TV show or something, and. Um, each side. And so we, we, we sequence side A and we sequence side B and, um, and because I was largely thinking of this as a, a vinyl experience, not necessarily, not like really trying to be like hip or anything, but because we have found that, um, aside from any sonic experience, that that is valuable on vinyl. Um, one, there are other things that I really, really love. One is with my child having this big picture to look at and to listen to the music while studying the faces or the artwork, and and that experience of of marrying the sound with the visuals, mm -hmm. I think is is so special and. Um, and I really enjoy not having to choose what's going to happen next. Even with playlists and random playlists, I'm, at the end of a song, I'm going to have to choose whether I'm going to skip it or deal with it. And um, <laughs> I don't want to make a choice. I, I'm so tired of having to choose everything that I'm going to experience. I just want to put on a record, make that one choice, and then listen to it all the way through. And I found that to be something that's been really calming to, to me and freeing in a well, way. You, you did a great job with that. And I know exactly what you mean. There's a vibe. And when I put it on, it all sort of flowed by in a really nice, seamless way. And I will say, I know that you are looking at this as a children's record, but 
I think it's a record for everyone. And I loved what you said about this sort of message of optimism and the way that we bring this certain vibe to interactions with kids. And especially over this past crazy challenging last year, adults need some of that too, you know, and it's got this really beautiful, gentle flow to it. And I know what you mean, you know, keeping the music going and always having to choose what's next seems like part of the modern listening formula, but uh, you you really created something beautiful. I'm a fan. I love it. Thank you. Thanks yeah. a lot. I appreciate that. And I I totally agree about that. That adults need that kind of care. I feel like there's a lot of um, of leniency and compassion and patience that we afford children, uh, the the children that we care about in our lives, and and it's uh, nice to do it to to give it to yourself and to other grown-ups around you as well. I feel like um, we all need a little, we all need that, that compassion and that, that gentleness. Yeah. And uh, I think that I wanted this record to be kind and gentle to people. And I think part of that for, for adults who might be familiar with this, these songs is the comfort of, of something that they are already familiar with. Um, and presenting it in a way that hopefully brings new life to them, uh, to the songs. And, um, oh my gosh, the artwork, I'm really excited about. I read about it. I want to see it. It's a really, really, um, I'm really excited about it. I haven't, I'm not somebody who is typically, uh, that at, at, at all interested in the visuals of an album before I'm done making it and um, before I'm done recording the music. And, uh, but I, I've, I, I'm, it's a big part of, I think, um, the way that I imagine this record being so taken you, in. Are you talking specifically about the vinyl packaging? The, the, um, the, the, the artwork on it. Uh-huh. Um, the artwork is, uh, is collage okay. that, um, and that the artist is, um, Adam, I think I, it's Sneezek, I believe. Okay. Honestly, I've never met him. We've corresponded on email, um, S N I E Z E K. And, uh, he's just done a gorgeous job putting, um, putting artwork together to make a collage in a collage to to kind of create this surreal um, surreal imagery uh, that I think really fits the imaginative lyrics and production um, awesome. on this record. Yeah, I can't wait to check it out. And to the point that it's not just for kids. You know, when that first track was rocking, there's this amazing nostalgic element to it. You know, my imagination, and it took me a second. Good. Come with me. And you'll be in a world of your imagination Take a look and you'll see into your imagination We'll begin with a spirit traveling in a world of my creation What we'll see 
that's so tied to my childhood and probably a lot of people who are in our sort of age bracket, you know, there's something really special and cool and nostalgic about that moment. So that in conjunction with the beautiful kind of lush flowing sound of this record, I'm, I'm excited for you and, and for this to, to get so out there in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, um, let's wind back for a second. And I usually start these interviews by asking guests about the moment where you really figured out that you were going to devote your life to music and commit to being a professional musician. For you, obviously, that moment came pretty early on, I would say, younger than most. But is there a specific moment or uh, a specific sort of early part of your career with music that really stands out as a turning point? And I think after, there were several. After, okay. I think there were several moments. I remember being a kid. I've always been a little bit practical. And I remember being a kid around probably the age of like, I don't know, somewhere between six and seven. And um, so six and a half. And um, <laughs> watching math. the band play, this band Bluegrass, et cetera, that was yeah, of uh, course. critical to our, I mean, it's the reason we play, the reason Nickel Creek happened. And um, in addition to being great musicians and performers, they uh, were incredible teachers. And cool. but I remember looking looking at the band and seeing John Moore, who was probably like twenty eight at the time, thinking, "Oh, so he can do this for a living? You can do this for a living?" Because everyone else I knew around me was teachers or dental assistants or um, you know something something around just keeping the keeping the town going. You know, <laughs> normal jobs. Um, the town needs music too, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. And um, and I remember looking at John Moore being thinking, oh, well, this is a job too. And you know, little did I know he was probably like going home to wash his laundry at his mom's house. You know, he was <laughs> like, I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, like like most musicians do for a while. But um. It was, uh, so there was like a moment where I thought, oh, this is something that could happen. And then I, I remember um, there were probably a couple more moments. There was a, the first time we got to play at Telluride, we were really little. We were hired to play at the kid's tent. And um, I think it was, oh gosh, it was either Skip or Steve. Um who, uh, Sminsky, who uh, brought us, introduced us to, um, or, or invited us to get to the, the main stage, I guess. How right? old were you guys at this point? I think I was 12. Okay. And Hartford was playing. We were going to, they, they somehow were running early, which never happens until you're right. And we, 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 we um, were invited to play for 20 minutes right before John Hartford. And, um, so we played, you know, so like all of the tunes as fast as we could. And um, and it was the first time on a proper stage. And what a stage it is. It's kind of, you know, it's mind blowing no matter at what yeah. point in your career. And so that was a big moment of, oh, this is cool. This is really cool. This is not just a children's tent. And then there were other moments. The Thiele's. Uh, Chris's family lived in Idlewild growing up a couple hours from us. And then when Chris and I were 15-ish, 
or maybe 14 or something like that. They moved to Kentucky. And there was a little bit of a thought of like, oh, maybe this is done. Maybe this is it. And then I remember in January, Sean and I, we, we you know, we had kept in touch and, and like nothing had happened. And in January of, of that year, Sean and I flew out and stayed with the Thielys for a couple of weeks. And we recorded in their house on a little ADAP machine and um, made a little CD, took some pictures, messed around, played ping pong. And that was a bit telling of like, oh, we're still, we can still do this. And this is, this is something we wanted to do. This is something we keep choosing to do. Yeah. And in some ways it, it felt like, oh, there was, a, there was enough momentum at that point that, that we, could, we could just kind of keep moving, stepping forward and there would be a path for us to step onto. And um, when Oh Brother, Where Art Thou came out 20 years ago, we were lucky enough to be a part of the conversation in Bluegrass at, the, at that point. And as you remember, that just kind of changed a lot for it did for a it lot did. of us. Well, that's that's a that's a good segue just to talking about Nickel Creek for a minute because you guys have created such a legacy and are such an influential piece of a movement that has really kind of come full circle. You know, Bluegrass has had these glimpses, you know, in the mainstream where the sort of success and profile of things are bumped up. Oh, brother is a great example. And now there's kind of these two sides to it. You know, I see you know, I'm with her is really kind of firmly at the front of, of one side. That's just this beautiful integrity music. And then there's this kind of jammy strain of bluegrass that is just really drawing humongous crowds and mm -hmm. you know, string dusters are more a part of that world, but all of this stuff in some way is derivative of bluegrass. And you guys were one of those early bands. I remember when you guys came onto my radar screen that really showed people that acoustic music could be really successful and not to mention the body of work and all the great music and performances, et cetera. But curious to know a little bit about how that went down and how aware you guys were of just what was happening with Nickel Creek and if there was anything that really tipped the scales and just what that felt like for a young musician who was following their dream and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is happening. Like, what mm -hmm. was that like? Well, I have to say that I was 18 when our first solo rec when our first self-titled record came out, our, our, our only self-titled record. But I say, I say that because we had made little homemade recordings before, but our first record on a record label was the self-titled release on Sugar Hill. And um, that was a totally different experience in every way. And, you know, when you're a kid, you can take everything in stride and everything feels normal because everything's new and you just kind of sure. go with it. So, um, we didn't know, I don't think we were really aware of how lucky we were at that time to have momentum. And, um, a big part of it was we had been a band for a while and we knew how to be a band. We had a dynamic, we had a, a way of functioning and that played in our favor in order to navigate some of these things that came our way, we, we were able to, we were um, opening for a band in the bluegrass series that, that the Ryman puts on. 
It was mm-hmm. a band that um, Tony Rice and Dan Tominski were in. And Allison Krauss and Ron Block were there to see the show. They were in the audience. We'd met Allison a decade before at a bluegrass festival. I don't know if she remembered that at that time. And we knew Ron. But Allison came back, huge star, to say that she liked what we did and to be really sweet and, and encourage us. We were trying to figure out who we could ask to produce our record, and uh, eventually we asked her, and she said yes. And that was a really big part of why our album was successful, I think. Her, her endorsement and, and just the way that she produced that record. Um, also, CMT, Country Music Television, was, was, doing, was doing a lot at that time for um, exposure, music exposure. They were playing videos all the time, music videos. And we put out a few music videos. The, 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 the guy running CMT, Chris something or other, um, he really liked us. And he had our record, had our video played a lot. And that was a huge part of our exposure as well. I remember that at, at um, we started having a lot of country music fans come to our shows, which was a bit of a collision with our our other group audience group because which um, how how would you describe what was your audience well, before we were, that happened we were trying to figure out our audience before that was um we would, if we played our own shows it would be to 100 or 200 people and it would be quiet it would be like a respectful bluegrass audience okay, where they're sure. silent and they're sitting and then they'll hoot for solos but right. There's not a lot of talking happening during the songs, and um, we were trying to we were trying to court this country exposure, seeing if country radio would play us. They really didn't that much, but um, the radio stations wanted to send their like their vans to the venue, and they'd blast country music outside the lobby, and that to their fans who would be coming to our show. It's a normal thing that happens, but it, it was conflicting with a lot of stuff that uh, that we were um, trying to express to people musically. And also, um, odd different audiences react different to bands. Over the course of a band's life, they, they've kind of trained their audience, or venues also train their audiences to either, um, you know, listen or you know maybe they train their audience to just drink a ton mm-hmm. or maybe they um you know it they uh, who comes to venues it can becomes a culture and um we were still trying to figure out what kind of culture we wanted to have and and uh when there were new members of of audience coming to our to our show they they often just wanted to hear the one song that they knew and they mm-hmm. wanted to talk through everything else which is a scenario that a lot of bands have um and uh we were not in favor of that we wanted to have um the experience that we had had before that which so was you guys wanted a listening attentive crowd. audiences yeah. yeah um we wanted a listening crowd yeah we're also we were also like very intense and very serious and not fun at all. So us, we thought we were fun, but like I think we we took ourselves very seriously. <laughs> well, you guys were badass musicians, still are obviously, but that that was a defining feature of the band, and I think one of the the legacies that you guys had left behind. And 
speaks to the connection with bluegrass music and the incredible musicianship. I think it has to do with being an acoustic band too, because yeah. when you're playing into microphones, you uh, it's hard enough to get your fiddle or mandolin or guitar loud enough into a room without it feeding back. But That's when right. you're also getting audience talking noise through that microphone, yeah, and then that's amplified, it's a losing battle. And so I think that that's also something that was hard. It was just hard to hear ourselves. And so um, that, that was frustrating. So all that to say that was a defining moment for us as well. And, um, and it was something that we kind of, we decided that we wanted to play different kind, different rooms. We didn't want to play those bars at that time. We, we decided to start playing other venues that were um, more conducive to the experience that we wanted to yeah. have and that we wanted our audience to have. It's an interesting thing, sort of growing pains when your band is growing, training your audience to partake in the experience that you want to craft. When you have all these new people coming to the shows, it's interesting to see the dynamic kind of have a life of its own. And so where did that, where did that go for you guys? Like from there, did you, we did stopped that... courting country radio. Okay. Uh, we stopped trying to get them to like us. Um, because that wasn't going well anyway. I remember I like, I have a very specific memory. I don't remember the venue, but I remember specifically playing this bar. It was a standing room and we had a lot of audience that was just trying to listen and they were shushing the other audience. And it was like this back and forth. Oh, that's always fun. People talking and then the <laughs> other people not having the experience they wanted. So they're getting mad at other people in the audience. And it was just um, that. I think the, the, the visual that I have, I think, was the final straw of us realizing that this is not what is happening is not working. And so we started um, disassembling that pursuit and instead trying to find a different way to gain an audience, which was a real challenge. And our manager, John Peets, our manager at the time, John Peets, was was really crucial in finding, you know, creative ways to to get it to, to reach people who wanted to see a band like us. Stick around, we'll be back after this very short break. Arizona Moon keep shining. 
comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. You know, pretty soon, a big Did you feel like there were any other bands like you guys? I know, you know, you guys were ahead of your time, but who were your contemporaries as far as hmm. young acoustic bands, anyone derivative of bluegrass, or did, did you guys, were you guys the only game in town? No, I'm definitely not the only game in town, but I I think that there was a bit of a scenario where you um you know when you like a lot of times that when you're a teenager um you kind of want to distance yourself from your family cuz you're kind of embarrassed. You want to be cool. You want to be cool and <laughs> I think we wanted to distance we didn't I think we wanted to think that we were different um and that we related more to bands that had different different instrumentation than we had. We were discovering the radio. <laughs> we were um, always in love with the elders of, of bluegrass and and like the generation before us, like the you know, Tim O'Brien and Tony Rice and um and you know Jerry and um, Allison and you know all these people who who uh, we were always going to be madly in love with. But in terms of who we, f- who we were um, being excited by in a new way, we were listening to <laughs> like Counting Crows and um, who else? Uh, Not a Surf. Um, these uh, other people who felt like, uh, we, we felt like um, had different ways of expressing what we were trying to find in ourselves or, you know, we were just learning how to be people. Definitely. The, definitely the first not a surf shout out on inside the musicians. Frame <laughs> right there, I love it. Um, you guys did it, that. Well, you were a fusion band. You had these amazing bluegrass roots and took all of what's so great about that music. And it's so deep, you know, people I think tend to view it as a simple form of music, but you could spend your whole lifetime working on bluegrass and the music is so soulful and deep, but fusing that with kind of more pop sensibilities and creating something that people hadn't heard before. And it, you know, the popularity speaks for itself. Thank you. Yeah, it was, I, I, I love bands. I love doing, I love playing music with people. And um, I feel so lucky to have, grown up in this band, um, with my brother and, and Chris is, um, is, 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 is as much of a brother. Um, and to have experienced a lot of my childhood with them, um, in this, in this, in the personal way of, of knowing everything about each other, but also the way that you do in a band, but also, you know, Feeling like I was, uh, I heard someone say you should never be the best musician on stage. Like, don't, don't, don't ever be the best musician in band. Put yourself in the position of always, always being, um, being surrounded or, or at least outnumbered by, by people who 
challenge you. And I am so grateful that I was in that position because I, um, you know, it was a, a great school to grow up in being yeah. in Nickel Creek. And, um, when we decided to put that on the shelf for a while, I hadn't really done a ton of stuff outside of Nickel Creek. I'd done the family hour, which is my brother's and my residency in Los Angeles. We started doing that. Nickel Creek had been touring three weeks on one week off year round. And, uh, it was, it was intense. And when we were home, we wanted, we, we started playing one gig that was just letting our hair down. So we were able, we were lucky to be a part of a community called around Largo in Los Angeles, which is a great home. It's, it, we couldn't have asked for a better home club community to be a part of. It's, it's a dream. And, um, and the owner Flanagan said, after getting to know him a little bit, he's like, you guys should do a show here. We'll do it once a month. We'll call it the Watkins family hour. I don't care if 17 people come, you should do it. And so we started doing it and it was, we played Tim and Molly O'Brien songs and we played, uh, Skaggs and Rice and we played, you know, Dolly Parton or Jackson five or whatever it was that we wanted to play once and never play again. Gabe Witcher played fiddle with us for those bunch of the first, it was a trio with Sean and Gabe Witcher and me. And, um, and then we started playing with whoever was in town, other musicians who were around the club or in tour on tour in town, making a record. And it just became this opportunity to just mess around and have a residency. And I started singing songs that I wanted to sing. And I felt like that was where I really learned. I started to find my voice was my real physical voice was at Largo because we were playing in this little dinner club singing with, you know, maybe one monitor, but tear, you know, not great sound. And, um, and just, just playing and, uh, and seeing, seeing other musicians. And that was a real, uh, it was like fertilizer. It was, it was, it was throwing the compost yeah. on, on what was really over farmed ground in terms of me as a musician. And you guys seem like you have sort of evolved into this kind of collective. There have been yeah. many amazing musicians who have, made music with the Watkins Family Hour, but you made this great record, Brother Sister, last yeah. year. And it seems pretty stripped down. I mean, it's really just focused on you and Sean and your songwriting. And it's awesome. I love I love Thank the music you. on there. But and was that was that sort of the stated goal was to yeah. go deep the two of you guys, right? That was together. the stated goal. Okay. Mm -hmm. We had uh because the family hour is, is there's Minimal rehearsing at all. Generally, it's just sound check rehearsal with guests that come by, and we just ask them to bring a song that people can learn kind of easily. And um, and it's a throw together. We throw the show together day of, and um, and it's really fun. And sometimes it works great, and sometimes it's like, well, we should try and figure out a way to not make it sound like that next time. And um, a lot of the songs that we do are chosen because we know that whoever is on stage, we can, Sean can call out the chord changes and we can walk through an arrangement on stage and people will get it and we can pull it together. A more complicated song with the tons of changes and ins and outs and we go to the bridge three times and it's always different on the chorus and all that stuff. You don't really, those don't fly so well. 
they're just too involved for a throw together situation. And um, we wanted going into this record, we wanted to, to, to be more refined and we wanted to make arrangements that the songs were written around and have them be songs that are challenging and not rely on, um, and, and just be able to do it ourselves. We mm-hmm. wanted to try and be self-contained to just see what we could do if it was just us. We ended up having a couple people play on the record. But yeah, the songs a, were written for duo performance. It's cool to hear about the advent of the project and the informality of it. And people who are not musicians are always surprised to hear, you guys didn't rehearse that? But there's so much magic that happens in that context. And that's such a part of the acoustic scene and bluegrass musicians will get on stage and sit in with each other and they don't even know what the song is before they get up there. But it seems like that was a cool kind of contrast to Nickel Creek was really locked in and doing your thing and playing stuff that people expected to hear. And then this was kind of a chance for you to spread your wings and try some different things. And you've, you've had all these great solo releases since then. And I'm curious to, um, just talk about how those come together, your process. Um, I love young and all the wrong ways, really, really cool record. And do those records sort of follow a similar arc? You know, you're always writing songs and then you collect up the best and then it's time to make a record or are you trying to do something different with these different records? How do you view that side of your career? I hear people talking about having 40 songs and whittling it down to the best 10. And I'm like, who are you? I know, I hate those people. How does that happen? (laughs) Uh, How do you have 40 songs and then you have to find the best ones? Like, um, I've written maybe two songs that I haven't recorded. Like, really written and finished two songs. (laughs) Everything gets recorded. Um, I think that uh, one thing that is really lucky about um really lucky for me is is that I get to be a part of different projects that inspire the next one or give me time to recover when I did my first solo record after Nickel Creek um it I you know I toured it for a year and a half and it was a real steep learning curve and it was you know tour managing myself with a few other you know um musicians and figuring out how to do all that well while uh, doing all the stage stuff and, you know, setting up merch and all the stuff that you do when you're, you know, when you're touring uh, like that. And it was really exhausting and I had no chance to write or, and it came time to do my second record and I was just completely deflated. You didn't have your 40 songs ready to go? I I was, I was maybe (laughs) on like nothing. And... But I was invited to tour as a side man, side person, in uh, the Decemberists for their record. They needed a fiddle player and a female harmony singer. And um, I got to do that for like eight months. And it was, that was when I discovered that I kind of, if I can, if I can have a variety of experiences, like the more variety, the better. I'd never been a side person for that kind of, in that kind of gig and it was so great, and they were so welcoming. And um, it's not inclusive. a bad, not a bad band to be a side oh, was, person. Oh, There's, it was, it was amazing. And I got yeah. to, you know, be on their tour on their bus, and yeah. and and they really, you know, let me be in on on, on so much. And um, 
And they, like, assumed that I could play a baritone electric guitar solo. And uh, and they just assumed these things of me. They're like, oh, yeah, well, can you can you handle that? And it was so great because I'd never done – nobody had challenged me by assuming that I could do that kind of thing before. There's always a better guitar player in the room. So what came out of all of that? I think a confidence and a, and a different – just seeing how different people do shows – like yeah. seeing how the, the Tempers do a show unlike any other band and being a part of that and seeing their relationship with their audience, it was just, it blew open my world in terms of my perception of how I could do a show and, and what the experience can be for everybody involved. And, and, um, and then I started, uh, I, I did um, another record and Young and All the Wrong Ways came out like four years ago. Some Midnight Sun was in between that. And that was like my first step off of home base. And then Young and All the Wrong Ways felt like it was my first real record that, that reflected me the, at the time. And That's um, a great record. Thank and you. I, I was spinning it the last few days. There's a couple on there um, without a word. Thanks. It's beautiful song. I also love that one, Say So. It's really... It's really cool. There's an evolution over those records. You can hear it. And it sounds like all these different aspects of your career, you know, so much great experience has all played into this. And and there's other projects too. Like we haven't even talked about I'm With Her, Lady Power Supergroup. You guys are awesome. And we just Thanks. had we just had Sarah Jarose on. Um Wonderful. She's awesome. Her new record, World on the Ground, is killer. So I'm curious, what's um, how do you think this whole long hiatus has shaped how you view your career, if at all? You know, all this time home. How how has it changed things for you, and and what what does it look like moving forward? We'll see. Um, I was just talking to Jeroz yesterday about considering if uh, this time at home will affect how much people want to tour. Um, because in, in, in the, uh, the obsession to, to always keep busy and that being the standard of success and happiness, because how dare you, uh, how dare you enjoy time that's not productive or um, do you or, feel or like it, you've you feel like you've had that that pressure has been on you for most of your career people expect you to be busy be out there touring that's just yeah and I've been know. happy about it honestly yeah. like I love to be busy I love doing different stuff I love I have loved that rhythm about life um, it's a little different now that I have a three-year-old and I'm considering how those things go together um, and I'm with her, I got, Aoife and I both had toddlers and, and, or had infants at the time and we were able to bring them on tour and it was a huge gift. And I, I'm like the opportunity, the, the option to work and, and, uh, have my baby with me was just, you know, it's a privilege that a lot of people don't, aren't, don't have. Um, and to do it with my friend it was, it was, it was just incredible. And, um, but now we're in a different phase and, and, and I'm learning 
how I want to do that. And also this, this full stop of, of rhythm. Honestly, this summer people were talking about how much they missed festivals. And I was just like, I don't miss them yet. I kind of do now. I, like in the fall, what I miss, I miss seeing shows. I miss being in the audience, seeing a show. I miss everyone agreeing, everyone in a room agreeing to sing a song. Like, I, was, I went to a Travis show, I remember like 20 years ago. We were recording Why Should the Fire Die, Nickel Creek. And I just needed to, to get some fresh air. And I went to the last quarter of this Travis show at the Wiltern in Los Angeles. And everyone was singing, um, sing, sing, sing. This just the chorusy, the most chorusy band. And the whole audience was singing. And it was like... It was like being in a field of flowers and just smelling. There's this beautiful aroma. I miss that. I know. There's no, yes, people are, musicians are having a chance during this time to experience another side of life that, as you say, is not, we're expected to be on the road. And that's the business model that we all inherited. and, And now we're home. We're having a chance to develop some other skills, potentially view our careers a little differently. And I think there are some great innovations there, but live music, there will never be a substitute for a live show. And I think I agree. I agree. Having that to fall back on just the comfort of knowing that, and it'll be interesting because the appetite is going to be sky high here sometime in the near future when, you know, clubs can fill up again. But I think I'm hearing a lot of people say they've experienced a more balanced life and more time at home with their families and friends. And it'll be interesting to see how how that affects the the long-term scope of what a career is like for a touring musician. We'll see. Yeah. You know, I think uh, I've, I've, I've also, I, I say this, I have this perspective knowing, and, and it, I, I forget that I've I've been able to do this home thing with my brother, playing music with my brother, and um, and that I've so I've gotten to play with people. And granted, it is just the two of us, and it gets kind of boring. But um, that that's something that a lot of musicians don't have is playing with people, and and um, that is that's really hard. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, I, this summer, everybody was saying that they missed festivals. And I was like, I'm not. I think the reason that I didn't is because nobody was at festivals. If other people were at festivals, I would have had serious FOMO. Right. But the fact that nobody was, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this mm-hmm. and, um, and, and just skip festival season this year. Um, but then this fall, it really, I did, it started to really sink in. The, the things that I appreciate about, about life I think that, you know, it's good to be thirsty for things that you care about and to realize the things that you didn't need. That's such and a great And so I'm hopeful that I'll be point. able to, I'm hopeful to remember those things. I'm hopeful that I'll be able to remember the stuff that was important and not just go back to my default behavior. Um, and I think that will help me be a better, like a healthier individual and um, that and that aspect of it, you know, some fans are going to potentially lament 
that artist maybe won't be out there as much, but the reality is, you know, how sustainable is 120 shows a year? And does that lead to creating the best art and best music for people? And, right. you know, what you said is poignant and there are all these different aspects of it, the career aspect, there's just the musical outlet, but will yeah. this, will this potentially, you know, put artists in a place to be more centered and make more great music, you know? It's so tricky. I mean, it's so tricky. I think that um, there's there's been this pressure that I have felt to keep every restaurant alive and to keep every business in business and to support everything, to keep everything afloat. And I felt this personal pressure and it's been really stressful and anxiety inducing where I feel like I've got to order way more food than I need from the, every restaurant in town because I'm responsible for keeping them afloat. And there's a little bit of truth to, 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 to that in terms, but, but the truth that I, the way that I've been able to, to deal with that, uh, need and urgency and actual, you know, the, the legitimacy of some of that is that just to be more thoughtful about how I spend my resources, time is a resource and mm -hmm. I want to be more thoughtful about how I do all of that. And it might be that a lot of artists and restaurants and companies don't survive. And we're going to have to figure out uh, what that looks like. A lot of venues are not surviving, um, but we're going to have to figure out ways as individuals to support the things that matter to us. And, you know, that's kind of all that, that we can do. <laughs> Yeah. That's all that I can do is, you know, I, the things that, that matter, I want to support. I want to go see the bands that I care about. I want to try and be more thoughtful about where I buy my stuff and where I don't buy my stuff. And, um, and also maybe I just don't need to buy as much stuff. Yeah. No, it's and it's this weird, because like our country, there's this weird thing of like, you need to spend, you need to like, because we're built on on spending and the economy, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a lot of pressure for all of us to be under. And, um, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out because as you said, it could be that playing 180 shows a year is not the best thing for art. And if we're right. talking about art, then, you know, is, I think about like the best, the, the, not the best artists, but like the most authentic artists that I know are people who live really thoughtfully and, um, and and not terribly fast-paced lives. Yeah. Well, and there's going to be, that's a great point and a great perspective to come out of this. And there's going to be a big shakeup. You know, there are things that aren't going to go back to normal. But we're also discovering new ways of doing things from all the different patterns that you just talked mm -hmm. about to what is it that leads to more substantive careers and art and yeah. You know, look at the restaurant business. It's like, are the prices right to take care of and pay all these people properly? Same with the music industry, you know, and I think people are getting a chance to reevaluate this. How do we spend our resources? How how do we spend our time that ultimately supports, you know, the world around us, our community and bringing as much good stuff, you know, into the world as we possibly can? And there are a lot of new perspectives coming around that right now. And it's, it's really interesting, but it's good to know for us that music will never go out of style. And I 
uh, it, I just feel so bad for all the other people in the chain, the crews and the venues and everyone. It's it's heartbreaking. It's a it's a huge. Yeah, the effect the effect is huge, and um, and uh, yeah, I, I I look forward to reconnecting with you know with all those relationships with the the people at the venues who I've usually we get to see yeah, once or twice a year for sure. at the festivals and yeah. and really celebrating with the the vendors <laughs> that 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 we've come to know and appreciate and and see and 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 getting to hug them and just be like we you know we we hi and I, I know. appreciate you and I love you and I don't think I don't think any of us will take a moment on stage for granted, a moment in the audience for granted, and that perspective is is worth a lot. And it'll be interesting to see where it where it all leads. But I do think we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning. And yeah. you know, fingers crossed for live shows to come back. And huge props to you for taking advantage of the downtime and your great new record under the pepper tree. Everyone, go check it out. And yeah, great to have you on the podcast today, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Pandolfi. Yeah, absolutely. Hope to see you soon. All right, same. Bye. Okay, that's a wrap on episode 16 of the podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Huge thanks, as always, to Osiris Media and Americana Vibes for helping me get the podcast out there. Thanks also to our excellent sponsors this season, EMG Pickups and Icelandic Skis. If you dig what you're hearing, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Help me get the word out. And join me back here again in two weeks for another episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.